Welcome to Research Bites, the podcast about researchers and their journey in academia. My name is Lachlan Gray. I'm joined by Felix Cohane, and our guest today is Etienne Mars Farquhar, who is a postdoc at the Garvin Institute. How are you today? Thanks, Lucky. I'm good. Happy to be here. That's good. We're very, very uh, thrilled to have you here. Um, I've read a lot of your papers, and uh, every time I, I feel a little bit worse about myself. So that's what I am. Uh, yeah, that's it, it's a good aim. It's a good aim. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so starting off the podcast as, as we normally do, uh, tell us a bit of your background. Like, how did you get into research? How did you get into science? Yeah, it's a good question. So it, it actually goes back a fairly long way for me. So I, both my parents are academics and, and essentially career academics, and they've been working together in the same building at ANU in wow. Canada for thirty five years. So I actually grew up, you know, when I was seven, eight, or nine, I was sneaking into the RSB building through um, my parents' card access and sitting in their office as they did science outside. Um, so I, I saw a lot of that growing up, which was really cool. And uh, What sort of scientists were your parents? Uh, so they're both, I suppose, broadly speaking, plant scientists. Oh, so my mum hmm. is, she actually does, in a way, similar work to, to what a lot of people do at the Garvin Institute um, with, with mice or other model organisms, but she does that in plants. And so she studies the effects of mutating specific genes and how that regulates their overall growth, their root development, crop yield, that kind of thing. Mm, wow. So it's sort of, I think she's called a plant physiologist. Sequencing and like? Uh, it's mostly genetic engineering of various um, plants, particularly working with Arabidopsis, which is a really tractable um, plant model. And they use that to essentially identify genes that can be used to modulate yield and um, resistance to water stress and all that kind of thing. And so my dad, broadly speaking, studies similar things, but he's much more into the maths and um, physical modelling of, car- of, of carbon fixation and photosynthesis. So that's actually sort of one of the big things he became known for. So he's more of a, I suppose, a broadly speaking, a climate change scientist. Wow. Your family Christmases must be <laughs> incredibly interesting. The Incredibly interesting or very boring, depending <laughs> on who you ask, I think. But um, no, I mean, I, I think they're really cool. It was a, a sort of... A, an interesting experience going on walks and bushwalks with my parents because every five meters you'd stop and my parents would discuss the the genus and family of <laughs> yeah. any given plant for about 10 minutes so <laughs> I've, I've got a friend like that who's obsessed with native orchids and you can't <laughs> go more than two meters without him sort of foraging for for an orchid so yeah that yeah, would be you, uh, you only need one but having two is, uh, <laughs> is, is often fatal so that was always interesting growing up but um i guess yeah they really gave me a love for science and we always had really interesting scientists and, and people coming through to our place and even often living with us at the time, postdocs and others. So I suppose I sort of loved scientists growing up and that, that was really interesting. It didn't necessarily motivate me to, to become a scientist per se, but I, I have this sort of fond memory that's completely unrealistic. You guys are going to chuckle that when I was about 11 or 12, I had this dream of being a part-time scientist and a part-time chef, <laughs> which is essentially like two of the most high-volume high, high volume and stressful <laughs> yeah, jobs stress. you could kind of try and combine. So not super realistic, but what, I suppose... What yeah. about the chefing component um, was, was interesting to you? Well, nothing to do with the, the more kind of chemical aspect that you might have imagined, which you know I suppose a lot of chefs and a lot of scientists see similarities in mm. how we follow essentially protocols recipes. or recipes mm. to, to do what we do, but... No, I just love food. That's <laughs> essentially the, the, the fundamental <laughs> reason. So put me in front of a dessert or, or savoury food, whatever it is, I'll, I'll devour it. And my mum's a really good cook, so I spent a lot of time with her cooking growing up. Um, so that was sort of a, 
an early dream. I don't know how realistic. Hey, uh, not too long in life, you know. No, you always go into food and that's shepherd. right. I can still I can still change things up. So, um, but then after that, I had some some really great science teachers in high school, and I think that's probably a recurring theme for a lot of people who go into science is people who've you know had really wonderful teachers. Hmm. And one of my biology teachers was particularly passionate about immunology, which is where I ended up, and I can talk more about that later. But he kind of introduced me to that, and we went to some really cool um, talks during those high school years that were organised by him, but extracurricular. And so one of them that was that really struck in my mind, actually, and I met her a number of years later, and I think maybe the two of you would have as well, is um, Fiona Wood, who invented spray-on skin for burns victims. Oh, yeah. Mm. And uh, she was, yeah, really high profile, really impressive um, scientist, you know, raising a family at the same time as tackling, you know, incredibly interesting and, and Im- important clinical problems. So that was a really sort of uh, memorable experience seeing her speak at the ANU. And that was when I was, I think, maybe 13 or 14. Uh, and then I was really, really sort of uh, lucky when I was 16 to essentially be able to go do a, an extracurricular research project at the ANU in the lab of a guy called Chris Goodnow, who, of course, I then ended up doing my PhD with, and you both know him because he ended up being the director of the garden for a while. Uh, and so he was uh, sort of nice enough to let a random 16-year-old rock up to the lab and, and accompany one of his poor PhD students at the time, Yogesh, who's now a, has been a really good friend ever since. But Yogesh showed me a lot of techniques, and he was studying the role of different genetic mutations in immune cells and how that predisposes to various B-cell cancers in that case. And so that was a really... That sort of, I suppose, confirmed my interest in immunology. Uh, and that was very shortly before I left for, for France. I'm, so I'm half French. I spent the, the first part of my life studying in French uh, until I left for Paris to do some studies there. And just before I left, I had that great experience in, in Chris Quinnell's lab with Yogesh. And when I went to Paris, I then had the opportunity to, to work in the Pasteur Institute um, and Imagine Institute, which is another institute that does a lot of what we call immunogenomics, which I'll talk a bit and about. And how, how old were you at this time? Uh, so I was 16 in Chris's lab, and I think I must have been about 18 when I was in the wow. Pasteur Institute for research projects, that was. Mm. That, you know, I wasn't doing anything life-changing necessarily. <laughs> but it, was, it was a super cool experience. So um, the, the, the Imagine um, internship was really sort of in a funny way quite a circular experience in the sense that I've come back to a very similar field now all mm. these years later, but I was basically helping them screen kids for this disease called ALPS, which is caused by inherited mutations in this gene, FAS. Uh, and so the techniques I was using were pretty straightforward, but it was my first experience being in a lab where essentially we were seeing clinical samples, blood in this case, from kids who have quite severe disease and their lives are really strongly affected and being able to sit in the lab and determine whether yes, no, this single gene was causing that disease. And so that was a really nice experience for, for three months to do that and, again, kind of solidified where I was going. Um, and so I was in Paris throughout that time and having a, an absolute ball, <laughs> uh, unrelated to science, but i uh, not too sure how I survived the experience because I, I – so, like I told you, I have a sweet tooth. And, oh, man, the pastries. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't even tell you how much I love the pastries. So the bakery just downstairs from my from my um, parents uh, from my sister's apartment where we were staying together in the Marais, uh makes of course these beautiful beautiful pastries every day and it's so tightly regulated in France that you can only actually sell a pastry if it's been made that day mm. and they regulate the types of flour you know all sorts of things the the, the amount of butter you're putting in there so that we really care about our pastries um, but there's a, a cheat that this um, baker was using, which is that at the end of each day, the 
chocolate croissants and croissants that they weren't able to sell that day, they would rebake in extra sugar and almond meal. And the next day they'd sell them as a two-for-one deal. Mm. And for the first six months that I was in Paris, every morning I bought two of these massive sugar and almond encrusted pastries and had one every morning and one every night. <laughs> so a bit of a Fuel, segue, yeah. but it was fueling my... Um, my time in Paris scientific and, and passion and you ate nothing else <laughs> no, that's right <laughs> it was uh, interesting let's put it that way but um so I was having an amazing time in Paris made some really good friends and I was studying in a really intensive curriculum there that's called class préparatoire which basically translates to preparatory school and you do that for two years and you go into two alternate streams in France one of them is a university stream and the other is called grande école which is I suppose big school translated and People who tend to go through engineering, uh, some of the sciences would go through these Grand And to do that, you do this really intensive two-year preparatory school uh, where a lot of students really are spending you know, 70, even 80 hours a week studying for right. these really incredibly intensive exams across biology, chemistry, physics, um, geology. This is all pre-university. So this is the first two years technically of university right. or, or equivalent. Okay. Um, and so I was having... In some ways, a tough time, but also a really fun fun time. It was a pretty brutal system in some ways, but also incredibly formative. And you you know, I was with the best and brightest from from a lot of schools in France and people who are really sort of inspiring. And I think, for whatever reason, I think it's a part of my personality that I I try not to take things too personally or too seriously. So I think it I had a better experience than maybe some of my um, some of my friends did, because to give you some idea, we're in a small room right now. Every week we had two of these sort of exams where three of us would rock up to a room very similar to the one we're in now, quite small, with a big chalk board on three sides of the room. And the teacher would sit in a chair in the middle of the room observing us while for half an hour we prepared what we were going to say to them and then did a sort of small discourse on the, the topic of the day. It was some sort of scientific question. And the standard sort of responses were, were you're terrible, you have no idea what you're doing. Jeez. Um, you know you need to work harder, this is not cutting it. And so you had a lot of students who were coming from schools and you know, across France or various areas who were used to getting the equivalent of 99s or 100s in their ATARs who were suddenly getting five out of 100 mm. equivalent. Uh, and everyone was, was feeling the same way, but it was a really interesting change in system. Was, was that more assessing not necessarily your, uh, your ability to you know, write an essay or write, but actually... Um, um, communicate the idea and actually articulate these these theories yeah it's a good question i think that was definitely part of it and the other part of it was a just a really interesting difference in the way that i think they view scientific teaching in france compared to to australia or the anglo-saxon system where and to some extent i quite agree which is that the idea of getting 100 percent is very academic but doesn't really translate to the real world necessarily it doesn't really translate even to science as we know in our day-to-day it's it's all about imperfection and, and striving for the sort of best outcome you can and I think that that's sort of reflected in the way they teach things which is that it was entirely not expected that anyone would get 100% on any Mm. of these exams so the questions were incredibly hard and I suppose it just meant that people who did really well Mm. were were reaching 10 out of 100 rather than 5 out of 100 so it's just a slightly different way of viewing the the way they teach science I think um it was really interesting um to see that and to to live it Uh, and I, I was having a pretty good time but I'm not much of a planner and maybe a year and a half through this system, I realised that the only... I already sort of knew I wanted to do immunology later on. I realised after a year and a half that the only way I could do immunology after doing 
classe préparatoire was to do a grand école called ENS, which takes maybe 0.5% of the people from the best classe préparatoire, which are already the top 1% <laughs> of French um, students. Uh, so that, that was one option. The other option was to do medicine and then eventually mm. uh, transition into immunology research. And I sort of just realised, well, w I'm not too sure why I've gone down this track considering that I could go back to Australia and do medical science as an undergraduate degree, finish that in four years with honours and then go into my PhD. Mm. And so um, it was sad to leave Paris and sad to leave those friends, but that's at that point I decided to go back to Canberra got my equivalents for those first two years and then did undergraduate uh, studies at the ANU, yep. uh, which is where I met a lot of people that I think we, we know in common uh, and finished my undergrad there, did my honours with a guy called Anselm Enders in, in B-cell immunology and so that really sort of solidified where I was heading and then came full circle and came to Sydney to do my PhD with, with Chris Goodnow. That's the whole sort of uh, backstory. <laughs> Sounds like you were, you kind of knew what you wanted to do very early, which is you know quite fascinating for me. Who I'm still kind of trying to figure that out. Almost you know like immunology. What is it about immunology to you that that really drew you towards that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it, it is true that I think I've known for a long time I wanted to do immunology, but I'm also I think I've always been struggling with the the, the frustration that I want to do everything at the same time. Yeah. So I came very close during that same period to, to entering a dual degree that was looking at um, philosophy and politics at the same time as medical science. Um, but I did. I, th I suppose I did know that I had a particular interest in immunology. And I think at the time, I don't think it was a grand plan. It was really sort of floating somewhat obliviously from one thing that I found really interesting to the next. And so when I originally went to Chris Goodnow's lab at the age of 16, he, um, his lab was looking at these mutations that precipitated immune cancers. I had some interactions with him during undergrad where I was actually doing some research projects and we were helping look at these polyreactive antibodies. So these are the same antibodies that underlie your vaccine responses. People would be particularly um, cognizant of that now given the COVID and other um, problems we're seeing. But uh, looking at this really critical problem of why some viruses like HIV, um, uh, sorry, like the flu, don't elicit good responses so that you actually have to keep on vaccinating everyone mm -hmm. seasonally. Uh, and so that's where we were looking at these so-called broadly reactive antibodies that might help sort of address that problem. And so that was completely different to the initial problem that I'd been studying with Yogesh all those years ago. And following on from that, I just kept on, I suppose, finding new immunology-related problems that I found really fascinating. So I guess it was the guiding or, or, or uh, common theme amongst all of these really, really interesting questions. Um, and I still feel that way now. I've been studying autoimmune diseases and inflammatory diseases, which I can talk about more for some time, but I, I still stumble on all of these diseases and areas that I think are incredibly fascinating. I mean, right now there's all these amazing emerging links between the nervous system and the immune system mm. and how the immune cells are regulating nervous cells, um, how they innovate new areas or respond to, to various insults, you know, whether you've been injured or otherwise... And just some really fascinating things that always tie in in some way, for, at least from my bias perspective, to how the immune system works. So I suppose that's really why I like it. It's a really interesting field that is linked with essentially every single physiological process we have. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, there's a common thread in most human diseases mm. that the immune system is, is lurking somewhere there. Yeah. Mm. Um, if not just clearing up the, the damage that the disease has caused, at the very least. Um, so what was your PhD on? What was the topic of, of your PhD? Yeah, so, so when I came to Sydney, I sat down with Chris and with Joanne Reed, who, who's moved to Westmead now, but who was my co-supervisor at the time. And we, we did 
talk about a few of these different topics. We talked about these broadly reactive antibodies. But the, the theme that really stuck with me and that linked in nicely with what Chris's interest had been over the past decade was really the role of what we call acquired mutations. So that's mutations or changes in your DNA that are not inherited from your parents necessarily, but are only so-called so acquired by a subset of your cells. And so that can be a really incredibly tiny fraction of your cells in your body. But an acquired mutation in just that small number of cells can be sufficient to precipitate really serious diseases. And so at the time, there was this really relatively new but emerging thread that these acquired mutations were contributing to a whole host of what we call adult onset and complex immune diseases. So there was a whole wealth of literature for the last few decades and more, in fact, on inherited mutations in different genes that cause very severe and often childhood onset immune diseases. And so the classic sort of more well-known example is so-called bubble boys who mm. essentially had had such deficiency in their immune system through these inherited mutations that they had to live literally in a bubble to protect them from viruses and, and um, bacteria in their environment. And so at the time, what was really sort of fascinating to me was this idea that this, this significant fraction of adult onset diseases that we currently can't explain and that we've been trying to explain for some time through inherited genetic associations might actually be due to the fact that over time and as we age, our cells are actually acquiring these additional mutations. Mm. So it's a very similar, I suppose, conceptual evolution to that of cancer. You'd imagine mm. that just like in skin cancer, where a skin cell might acquire more and more mutations and eventually that causes it to proliferate and survive to such an extent that it's malignant. Well, you can imagine a similar concept where an immune cell that's normally destroyed because it targets your own cells actually acquires mutations that allow it to survive those processes. And that's the initiating root cause, so to speak, of autoimmune disease. And so the idea that I could help study a fundamental process that is underlying many different autoimmune diseases, and there are hundreds of them, mm. many of them are poorly defined, and essentially none of them have cures precisely for the reason that we don't understand the underlying mechanism. That was really, uh, I suppose, a really exciting opportunity for me, and I, and I thought it was a really fascinating problem. So intellectually, it I thought it was really stimulating and it was clearly very clinically relevant. So it had that sort of dual uh, dual appeal to me. And so that's why I started the PhD with Chris. And the, the theme of that PhD was essentially to study in mouse uh, model organisms and then also in clinical samples from individuals with uh, inherited mutations, in this case, in genes that are mutated in both childhood onset autoimmune disease and also in immune cancers that we call lymphomas and leukemias. And the reason we looked at that interplay is that these lymphomas and leukemias are often in turn associated with autoimmune disease. So there's a really significant overlap there that's underexplained. Are the acquired mutations the same genes as the ones that are inherited? Yeah, it's a really good question. Like often in, the, in the same genes? In our experience, they often are. So the, the acquired mutations that we see in immune cancers have share a lot of overlap with the ones that we see as inherited in children with various immune dysregulations so whether that's autoimmune disease immunodeficiency or inflammation so there's certainly a big precedent there to study that overlap uh, but the critical question in a lot of cases when you study adult onset autoimmune diseases and so some of the common ones including ones that I work on a lot uh, rheumatoid arthritis multiple sclerosis lupus but there are many others one of the really critical problems is that even if you can identify the incredibly rare cells that are circulating in someone's body that might have these disease causing mutations a, can you identify them? B, can you target them? 
And even more fundamentally from a scientific perspective, can you actually prove that they are causing disease? And that's a really critical problem that's not easy to solve. And so that's where my, I suppose, where my postdoc work is now moved, which is that through the PhD, we managed to show pretty conclusively, uh, mechanistically for a couple of genes that indeed acquired mutations in these genes can and do drive pathology in the context of autoimmune disease. And so now that means that we can actually go to a whole bunch of clinical samples from individuals who have pretty severe diseases that currently are not being treated or at least are not being treated effectively long term and try and actually fish out these really rare immune cells that are causing disease, identify what mutations are driving these cells to cause disease and therefore identify what pathways we might actually target therapeutically with mm. newer existing drugs to sort of treat those diseases in a more efficient way. Yeah, it sounds, uh, sounds very impressive, but sounds a little bit too easy. <laughs> I think you're uh, skipping over some, some steps there. Uh, maybe for our, our listeners who are um, thinking of doing a PhD or currently doing a PhD, were there moments during that where this narrative that you've just told us appeared that, um, you know, there was, there was some dead ends or there was some results that didn't quite make sense? Like, did you encounter those, those issues? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all do. And that's, I think the, the sort of common misconception or the thing that we should all be battling against as scientists is the idea that we have an amazing idea at the beginning of this journey and it turns out to be true. Yeah. A, that's, that's incredibly rare. And B, even if a broad concept happens to be true, the way that we get there is through these progressive mistakes mm. and dead ends that we learn from. And I think that's actually the, the, the funnest part of the scientific method is working through these problems and seeing these setbacks as, as opportunities and as exciting, as interesting. And every time you find something you didn't expect, you could decide to view it as a failure or you could decide to view it as an opportunity. And I think that's, that's what's most exciting about science for me is that being wrong is, is, is great um, <laughs> and it happens all the time. And so I suppose for young people who are starting out in their PhDs, it's just being aware that no matter how exciting your, your project is and no matter how no matter to what extent you've mitigated the risks that are inherent in science, because by definition we're, we're studying things that haven't been proven and the, the nature of an experiment is you don't know the outcome, I suppose it's being really mentally prepared for that and, and, and seeing it in, in a positive light. Hmm. Yeah, that's how, how was it? Um, so you've, you've worked quite a, uh, through your PhD and postdoc um, you know, tackling this problem. Um, yeah, how did you find that? You, did you feel like sort of at the end of your PhD there was no way that you could stop, you know, getting to the next question in the, in the current thing? Um, or was it something that you just really need to figure out, you know, to continue that work and, and really answer that question before moving on to something else if that's what you do want to do? Yeah, I think certainly psychologically I have that characteristic, which is that I'm, I'm very invested in the questions and I have trouble letting go. So there's this sort of running joke that... In, in the lab and I think more broadly that I'm interested in too many things and that once I latch onto a project, you can't really get rid of me. <laughs> so that's that's definitely a, a character trait, um, which I think is good and bad and we need different kinds of scientists tackling these problems. But yeah, for me, I came to the end of the PhD with, I suppose, more intellectual baggage or, or understanding of the fundamental things that drive autoimmune disease. And so now I feel like I'm I'm really excited to be in a phase where I can try and start applying that mm. directly to clinical samples. And I'm building a lot of, I've changed my role a lot recently, which is that I've started building a lot of clinical relationships directly and obtaining quite rare clinical samples to study some of these questions. That's been a really challenging thing, but also something that's been really exciting and rewarding because, you know, you're essentially as close as you can get, barring being a doctor, to, to, 
to that clinical interface, which is something I've always really aspired to. Um, so that's been a really nice, really nice learning curve. Yeah. It sounds very full circle in yeah. a way of how you started when you were at ANU with, with Chris to begin with. Like yeah, I suppose it is to some degree. Um, I think I'm I'm now moving in a slightly different direction, which is good. And I, th- I suppose for the scientific listeners out there, it is important just from a sort of career, um, I suppose, perspective to differentiate yourself over time from your, your mentors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am moving more into a broader space of information, which probably sounds much similar to many people to autoimmune disease, but is, is somewhat different. Uh, and I suppose very much in that clinical space, which... Uh, is a really kind of exciting place to to be. And one of the things that really struck me going into that space that I hadn't appreciated and I think is is my biggest gripe, so I'm going to sort of unload on you a little bit, but it's it's this incredible missed opportunity that we have right now, which is that, and I'll take the example of some of the work we're doing at the moment on rheumatoid arthritis, which is that every day in the hospital, people with rheumatoid arthritis or gout or other causes of sort of chronic joint inflammation and pain go into the hospital and they get fluid removed from their joints to alleviate that pain. And so that's synovial fluid that gets aspirated and actually contains millions or even billions of immune cells that are critically involved in disease and that you know we could be studying to try and help mm. better understand these diseases. And routinely these samples are immediately discarded in the hospital. And it's not the clinician's fault, of course, because their job is not to research these samples. It's to manage someone's disease and ameliorate their symptoms and maybe you know 50 other people's diseases in that hour exactly that's right and so i think it's kind of up to us as as clinical scientists to try and say well no hey that's a massive opportunity that we're missing Mm. and so that's actually something that's a bit outside of my i suppose my academic pursuits but i'm really passionate about now is trying to figure out ways that we can better use clinical samples that are already being generated Mm. and that would be incredibly useful for the medical and scientific community but that we're currently not utilizing so i think that's been a really cool new avenue for me Mm. seems like with a lot of autoimmune diseases um you know we've all got friends that have some forms or another that they often really upset with the the lack of you know research around that or lack of i guess an answer to to many of their um their, their diseases what, do you, what what is the sort of um, the research uh, environment around autoimmune disease? Like coming from a background in cancer, you know, everyone says, oh, there's so much research, so much money in, in cancer. It's never enough money for anyone, obviously. But is there a really big sort of research community around autoimmunity and are they sort of making big strides towards understanding some of these diseases? Yeah, no, it's a great question. The, the short answer is there is a massive community of people who are studying these diseases, but... It, it doesn't have the same uh, scope of funding or infrastructural support, or at least hasn't historically um, relative to cancer, for example. And I think a big problem there is actually inherent to the fact that there are more than 100 autoimmune diseases. Many of them are really poorly defined. Mm. And individually, some of them are incredibly rare. So you might, you might find out that you have an autoimmune disease that your doctor has never heard of. And so that that's a real sort of logistical challenge compared to more common cancers, for example. And it does mean, like you said, that even on a sort of mental, from a mental health perspective, a lot of people with various autoimmune diseases, either those diseases don't get recognised at all Mm. or they go through these incredibly long sort of diagnostic odysseys is what we call them um, before we actually find out what disease they have, let alone how we might best treat it or, Mm. or study it. So I think there's a growing community trying to tackle these problems, but there's, there's heaps of, um, work to be done in that space and that's kind of what's really exciting it means that 
everyone who's passionate about it can can sort of take a crack at it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. From from my understanding, there's like a average year, sorry, average time for diagnosis is about like four years, mm. and the main process of diagnosing an autoimmune disease is sort of crossing out. Mm. other diseases that aren't um, through various scans and blood tests being like, okay, well, you don't have this, so you yeah, must have, yeah. you know. Um, so, yeah, very complex, and complex I guess, disease. Yeah, lumping kind of things together, which really shouldn't be lumped together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, half the time some of these diagnoses are pretty murky, right? So mm. they, they could constitute a series of different, more specific diseases that we're considering the same right now, which is not ideal. Um, and it's, you know, it's crazy to think that it, we think about right now that it's about one, uh, it's about 8% of people in in the community that have or will have an autoimmune disease. So it's yeah. massive it's and it's yeah. costing something like twice the cost of cancer every year mm. because these diseases are all chronic and we can't cure them. So you end up with lifelong treatments with mm-hmm. pretty big side effects. So, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty big problem. And um, Lockie, of course, himself studies, studies, um, autoimmune diseases and, and coming from a different angle and there's just so many things to be done here mm. so I think it's really exciting mm. just sort of moving sort of topic slightly um, even though I'm, I'm sure we could talk about this for a very long time <laughs> um, I was curious to ask you uh, as I said you know I've, I've, I've read a number of your papers and, and I'm always just so impressed with the clarity of the writing and, and the work that you do but I was, I was curious to if you had any um, any ways that you think about problems, some sort of creative ways that you approach your your work? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I s- I'm trying. I'm I'm trying to. Yeah, sort of throwing <laughs> throwing it at you there. <laughs> I guess when you're when you're working uh, on a problem, do you have ways in which you sort of uh, let your mind uh, tackle that problem? Do you do exercise? Do you do go on long walks? Do, do you know what I mean? Like, do you have certain yeah. things you like to do? I see what you mean. I mean, certainly the exercise thing is a massive, massive thing for me, mostly actually from a sort of mental health and, and sort of general well-being perspective that that's really important for me. If I, don't, <laughs> if I don't have a run or a swim at least every few days, I'm incredibly antsy. So um, that's definitely a big thing. But in terms of the scientific process, it's a good question. And I, uh, I don't know that I do anything necessarily particularly unique. I think there are a lot of different kinds of thinkers that I see around me who have different different ways of tackling problems and I think what I'm really good at and it comes with its own disadvantages is that I'm really good at reading and finding out about seemingly disparate and seemingly different areas of knowledge that are tangentially or apparently tangentially related to the same problem and drawing intuitive links between them to so it's sort of I suppose what you call maybe more intersectional science but within Mm. my field of expertise and so that's what I find really efficient or really um exciting is to and it happens pretty organically you know you you end up reading about various pathways or various processes that you're interested in and that had some kind of initial link with the problem that you're studying and for me it's really about finding apparently um or previously unknown links between those and that's Mm -hmm. what i'm quite good at Uh, and often that means making a really deep dive into literature on one thing uh so i guess one thing which is a bit more sort of um, specific that I could say to actually elaborate on how I do that, which is that if I find a question of interest and I think there's something there, I will go back and essentially almost chronologically um, look through the literature, but not going back from the present, so 2023 backwards. I'll take the first known paper about a given disease or topic and read my way forwards. And so that has a lot of pros and cons. One of the big, 
um, cons <laughs> is, of course, as we all know, that many things that we discover <laughs> or talk about in the past turn out to be wrong. Hmm. Um, either they turn out to be wrong or they turn out to be, you know, not, not quite um, ground truth. But, but they're often wrong for interesting reasons, though. Exactly. Right? That's exactly it. And so that's actually, in terms of specifics, that's probably something that helps me a lot is that it helps identify what people were thinking about when they first discovered a molecule or a clinical problem. And you can actually see the whole evolution of how a field was thinking about that problem. And often what you see, and this has happened, that relates to my STAT3 paper and some of these others that we were talking about before, you see that early on in the field they became incredibly interested in a question and that question didn't disappear. The problem Mm. didn't disappear and the ways that were found to tackle that problem were often incomplete. And so going right back to the start and moving forward that way I actually find really informative as opposed to looking at what people accept to be the general truth now and leaving it at that. Is that because you now sort of have this more understanding of the the techniques that are available now and, and some of the questions that maybe couldn't be answered before are now being able to be answered? Yeah, that's definitely a massive thing. So you'd go back to many incredibly well-crafted and, and meaningful papers from even 10 years ago or 20 years ago, whenever, and there are technological limitations mm. that we can now use to address the problems that they were tackling. But I think it's also true that uh, simply asking different questions and being able to look at the evolution of the field's understanding of a clinical problem or a scientific problem gives you so much more insight than just finding out that today we appreciate that this autoimmune disease is related to this pathway. You're missing a whole sort of piece of the pie, a massive chunk of the pie even if you if you do it that way. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I can imagine that, you know, the, the skills of being able to link pieces of data would be really important for especially diseases like autoimmunity where you have such a, a diverse array of diseases that, you know, maybe have common pathways or maybe don't have common pathways and trying to, you know, piece those together is, I guess, one of the big problems or big unanswered problems at least, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you don't want to get me started too much on the science because I, <laughs> I could bore both your ears off about some examples as to how that that sort of happened for me. But I, I guess, yeah, it's good that you made me think of that, Lockie, because that's actually something that I really enjoy doing and that I've found a lot of insight from is is that approach. Um, yeah. I've, I've heard, yeah, I've, um, not to say it's a common approach, but I've heard of people that do this and that, um, you know, as you said, like some of these ideas, they don't really go anywhere. People just, they sort of appear and some people get focused on other things. Maybe there's a new sexy new technology and everyone goes running that mm-hmm. way, but this idea still remains. So, um, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Especially also like, it, I mean, it's a little bit different, but it, on those really uh, highly studied questions, like people often say, oh, you know, everyone works on this problem, like you shouldn't get into it. It's like everyone probably works on it because it's still unanswered or like it, it's still such an important part of that um, that puzzle. Um, so, yeah, it's, all, it's, a, it's an interesting technique. I might try that. Yeah, and I guess maybe because I've sold you on the pros, I should uh, also tell you <laughs> about the cons. <laughs> so, I mean, one of them is, you know, obviously you're investing a significantly larger chunk of time into studying that problem. So it does become a bit of a question of, of, of prioritising your, your time and mm. whether you have capacity to do it. So that's obviously one thing. But I think the other thing that is part of the fun but is probably worth being aware of before you start is that doing it that way, you're you're trying to grasp and understand all of these questions that have been asked throughout the evolution of the way that the field has tackled a specific question. And many of those 
um, questions and methodologies and results are sort of tangential. And so you can sort of get lost along the way mm. in these rabbit holes. Uh, and so the really thing, the thing that I found really difficult with that approach is, but probably the most important part about actually drawing meaning from that whole exercise is to synthesize what you're learning in one document and mm. to say, this was the understanding then which led to these questions and this is why this is now interesting. But but synthesizing that in a way where you're making sure that you're grasping where the field is now and, and why and don't get lost in the reads of all of these mm. other sort of questions that were, that propped up on mm. along the way and that's something I have trouble with. Yeah, <laughs> don't we all. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, to finish off, why don't you give us uh, sort of one bit of advice? It can be either to your uh, your younger PhD self or a budding postdoc even or even just your 16-year-old self about to uh, leave off to France. Um, what's some advice that you'd give yourself in the past? Good question. Uh, eat lots of ice cream, uh, <laughs> which sounds very sort of uh, silly, but uh, I think being a bit more um, serious about it. It's about sort of doing things that you enjoy and celebrating small moments in science, small victories, mm. or even tough moments and just taking time to do things you enjoy is a really important thing. And I think the other thing is there's so much stress in the scientific world right now around career paths and funding opportunities. And I think it's really valid to plan long-term and to be really strategic about how you do things. But fundamentally what I enjoy is moving more or less from one thing that I find interesting to the next. And I think there's a real joy in in trying to forget a little bit about some of those constraints and just following what you think is most exciting. And the rest somewhat follows. It's a bit of a blithe answer, but I think it is true. Um, and then the last thing that I would say uh, concretely when you're doing a PhD or master's or later in your career, I think it's true for everyone, is, and it's something I, I learned along the way, is being really clear about um, what you want and actually actively looking for mentors. And they, they might not be people you know very well, but people respond very well typically when you approach them and say that you you admire them or you like something specific about the way that they do things and that you'd like them to provide you with advice. And it's pretty rare that people would um, not respond at all or not help you. And I think that actively looking for these mentorships is actually something that creates really meaningful relationships for you and for them long-term and, and really helps people out a lot. So if, if I had to tell my young self one thing, it would probably be to be a bit more vulnerable and, and a bit more of a go-getter with establishing these kind of relationships. And then what, what flavour ice cream? Oh, pistachio praline and salted caramel Ooh, coffee. Nice. Fancy boy. All yeah. right. Killer combo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Matt, what a, what a fantastic chat. Uh, I feel like we're both going to be reading... Some very old literature mm. very soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and uh, good luck with the rest of your research. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks. That was awesome.